Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And uh, we are the walking wounded a little bit this week. I have a broken foot. Um, and Daniel, you're kind of, you're adjusting to your new uh, call at, at a new synagogue. Yes, I'm sitting here in my uh, new office. If you hear me a little nasally, I'm Got a little bit of a sinus infection too, so you know, always nice as a listener. <laughs> yep. So that, dear listeners, is why we missed last week. Uh, there, Daniel had a what Christians would call a pastoral emergency, and then a fever all at we once. Totally would use uh, uh, that phrase too. Would you see? I was talking to a Hillel director once who told me that he didn't like it as a phrase because it comes from kind of good shepherd, kind of Christian language and imagery. Oh yeah. Okay, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, most most rabbis I know still use it. And in synagogue, do you have pastoral care classes? And are they called yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're exactly. called pastoral care. Okay, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I spent the summer working at a hospital in pastoral training. Yep, the clinical pastoral education CPE. Most transformative thing I ever did, I think. Really, I hated mine. I gotta say, oh, did you? <laughs> totally hated it. Uh, it was a, it was an awful summer. Nine eleven happened while I was still there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, we are now at chapter thirty-five, dear dear listeners, uh, which means we are pretty close to finishing this bad boy, all the way up. Um, we will, we've got how many chapters left, Daniel? Just uh, five more after this, 40 chapters of Exodus. Yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, there are going to be a few more vacation breaks and things. So hopefully by the beginning of September, we will be done. Maybe mid-September. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. We're getting there. Yep. Uh, and for those of you who are completists or those of you who 10 years from now will be listening to all of these podcasts in a row as you fall asleep at night. Uh, know that today's date is uh, July 18th, 2018, when we are saying these words. I'm just saying that's that's 41 hours of sleep. I, I hadn't thought of that. I was having trouble sleeping last night. I should have listened to our podcast. If you are a bear uh, who is just having trouble dropping off into hibernation, this is the podcast for you. <laughs> That's what I would say. Uh, particularly if you're the bear that Elijah calls to eat the children. There you go. Yeah. All right. So we are on chapter 35. Uh, Daniel, do you want to jump right in and we'll see where this conversation takes us? Uh, so a note, we're actually starting a new Torah portion here. Chapter 35 uh, starts the rabbinic division. And just a reminder for people that, uh, you know, that the addition of chapters and then of verses is – actually a relatively recent addition here, right? If you look at a, uh, certainly if you look at a Torah scroll, there aren't any markers at all. The only markers are between the different books, um, which makes it quite difficult, by the way, to find your spot when you're reading. So uh, why is it called the rabbinic division? So the rabbis around the second century probably uh, are dividing up all of the Torah portions. They're putting vowels in uh, to the letters uh, and so what we get are these sections uh, so that there are set readings that happen at the same time uh, all over the world. Wherever you are as a Jew, you know that this is being read. Uh, so this is the beginning of a new uh, Torah portion here. Uh, so the entirety of 35 through, oh gosh, 38 or something like that Uh is one Torah portion, meaning you'd read it on one Saturday morning at uh, synagogue. 
Okay, and are other portions called the Rabbinic Division too, or are, does the Rabbinic Division just refer to the act of dividing it into pieces? Yeah, yeah, just the act of dividing it into pieces. This okay. uh, this goes through thirty eight verse twenty. So this is the second to last Torah portion in the uh, in the Book of Exodus. Okay, it's kind of like the Revised Common Lectionary, which many Christian churches now follow. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Uh, Okay. Um, and and there's a tradition, before you start reading, there is a tradition that this has something to do with Yom Kippur, right? Yes. So there, I, I just discovered this. That there, there's a tradition that says when the second set of tablets are given, that this is Yom Kippur. This is the uh, Jewish Day of Atonement. It's often thought of as sort of the highest of the high holy days uh, for Jews. And, and and this week we're approaching a different Jewish holiday, but uh, whose name I cannot remember, and also has something to do with atonement. Am I right about that? Yeah. So you know, interestingly, there are only two days in the Jewish calendar that are full fasts, meaning twenty-five hour fasts from uh, uh, the time when the sun goes down on the uh, evening before until total darkness the next night. Total darkness is the same as uh, seeing three major stars in the sky. Uh, and that's generally considered to be a 25 hour period. Uh, so for instance, that's how you calculate, uh, Shabbat is in the same way. Uh, but there are two of these full fasts. The, the first of them is Yom Kippur. It's known as the, the light fast light as in, um, uh, not dark, uh, because the day of atonement, though it's a, a heavy day in that sense, right? It's a day where all Jews fast and you show up at shul at synagogue and you're there all day. And, um, you're, you're sort of focusing on all the things that you've done wrong in the year. Uh, it's actually considered to be really a happy day because it's a new beginning. Right. Uh, right. For, for Jewish notions of sin, once you've really acknowledged what you've done wrong, you're not considered the same person as the person who committed that sin. Kind of like Good Friday is called Good Friday, even though it's the day of the crucifixion. Even though it's all misery and darkness, um, the the end result is happy and good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that. I never thought of it that way. Um, I didn't know that about Good Friday. I'd always wondered about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the other holiday, though, is known as the the dark fast, uh, Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, uh, and this is the day that Judaism has used as the marker of all of the destructions we have faced. Uh, so according to tradition, the, the 12 spies that Moses sends uh, into the land of Israel, they bring back their evil report uh, on Tisha B'Av. Okay. Uh, we're told that uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 586, 587, depending on how you date these things, uh, when he comes and destroys the first temple, this is on Tisha B'Av. Okay. Uh, we're told that the Romans in the year 70 CE, when they destroyed the second temple, we're told this is on Tisha B'Av. Uh, the crushing of the last of uh, the, the Jewish gasps of independence really prior to the state of Israel, Bar Kokhba's rebellion, uh, about 500,000 uh, Jews were killed on Tisha B'Av. Hmm. Uh, so it, it you know, whether or not these things happened literally on that day or not, it becomes the national Jewish day of mourning. 
and it becomes associated with all sorts of Jewish mourning. Uh, it, it's a day associated with the Crusades, uh, which were disastrous for Jews. Uh, it's uh, uh, actually it is the day the Jews were expelled from England in 1290. Uh, it's very close to the day Jews were expelled from France in 1306. Uh, again, very close to the day the Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492. Uh, Germany enters into World War One on Tisha B'Av. Uh, the final solution is approved by the Nazis on Tisha B'Av. Wow. Uh, in the mass deportation of Jews from the Warsaw ghetto, uh, on the way to Treblinka where they were all murdered is on Tisha B'Av. Um, so it, you know, it becomes the day where that's what we focus on. Yeah. It is a day of mourning and loss and destruction, uh, and a time to really to focus on that and to really come to grips with this is part of what it has meant to be a Jew over the last 2,700 years is all of this awfulness. Um, and particularly, I think, for American Jews today, it's often hard to resonate because that hasn't been our experience, certainly in the United States. You know, the way it's liturgically observed is you sit on the floor uh-huh. and uh, you chant the book of Echa, of uh, uh, Lamentations. Wow. So everybody in the synagogue will be sitting on the floor chanting the book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a very particular sort of haunting melody that goes along with the uh, traditional chant. Do cantors chant it or is everybody chanting together? No, it'd be, it would generally be either a cantor or, you know, you'd have people who would sign up well in advance. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very particular melody is not quite the right word. It's a uh, trope. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. All of these uh, words have marks beneath them that are grammatical marks, but the grammatical marks also tell you how to chant it. Um, sort of like musical notation. Right. Sort of. Right. Maybe like, uh, Gregorian chant or something if one were looking at that. Which, yeah. So um, the other thing, and and listeners, we are aware that we have not started it on the book yet. So we are we're probably going to top load today with discussions of of other things in Judaism and Christianity, and then breathe through the text. I, I imagine. But um, before we start recording, Daniel and I were talking about the difference between a people and a religion whether Judaism is a people or a religion, um, all, all of the things that you were just mentioning, you know, the programs, the Holocaust, those all feel like things that happen against people. Uh, you know, when we think of ethnic cleansing, we're not thinking uh, necessarily of it religiously. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, even the Book of Lamentations, I've never thought of it this way. You know, I... When Jews read the book of Lamentations, it's a sense that this is what happened to my ancestors. It's not, this is a piece of scripture. Right. Right. I mean, it's scripture too, but uh, primarily that this is whether or not you want to understand Lamentations as a history. Uh, you know, it's, it's poetry, powerful poetry. Yeah. It's actually not a book that I've spent very much time with. I don't think I've ever read it straight through. It's really uplifting. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Um, Actually, I'll tell you what it is. It's really immediate. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm struck by it every year when we read it that it is just, I mean, it's very composed. It's poetry. It's not, you know, off the cuff, but the mourning and the grief and the totality of the destruction in some ways it's um, like reading Elie Wiesel's night right. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there's, they're talking about how in the days after the destruction and the weeks after the destruction, mothers cooking the bodies of their children who have died of starvation because it's the only food they can eat uh-huh. and the disease running through the towns uh, right, Jews at least tend to focus on uh, Tisha B'Av as being about the destruction of the temples. But the temples themselves are just symbols. We're, we're really talking about uh, a genocide that happens yeah. here and, and the total right. destruction of a society. Right. We're talking about the Roman 10th Legion reducing Jerusalem to rubble and then camping in the ashes. It, yeah, in the fact that you can't offer the sacrifice at the temple anymore – it's a symbol, but it's really kind of an afterthought when uh, the reality is that most of the young women have been raped and dragged off into slavery, where the children uh, have been sold, where the men have been murdered, and where bodies are lying in the streets. Right. Right. So do you want – should we discuss whether Judaism is a, a people or a religion? Is that – I You know, I guess I'd love to hear your – thinking on this because uh, throughout my months working for the diocese, um, as I would go around and talk to churches, this was consistently one of the themes that I would return to. Uh, And it was one of the pieces. I I remember uh, Jane Gertson who works for the, the, uh, she works for the diocese or the cathedral for the diocese. Diocese. Uh Um, This is one of the things Jane always asked me to talk about because she said it was so new to her that she'd known Jews all of her life and she'd, you know, engaged with Jews and certainly as a, uh, um, interfaithfully engaged clergy member, I'm making up some yeah. words here. Sure. Uh, she dealt with Jews professionally, but she'd never thought of Jews as being anything other than a religious community. Mm-hmm. Well, so my thoughts about it, I can't think about it without thinking about something that uh, Anna Suen, who is a sociology professor at Kenyon, and whom, um, oddly enough, the band Walk the Moon wrote a song about her. Interesting. <laughs> she was a friend of mine. Um, and she told me that in China, um, basically, I forget, I'm going to try and get the order right, but basically... Uh, it's something like you're a Christian when you get married, you're a Buddhist when you die, you're something else. Maybe you're like a Confucian when you're born. This idea that that religious right does not necessarily denote uh, a kind of being a people per se, uh, but but is based on life stage. Um, and I found that fascinating. Like I've been thinking, she said that to me maybe like 10 years ago and I've never stopped thinking about it um, because I, I feel like Western understanding of religion is so wrapped up in Christianity and because Christianity is about converting people to a faith, whether you want to define that as a set of ideas, as an orthodoxy or a set of practices as an orthopraxis, um, 
you know, in the West, religion means a very particular thing, right? It means the thing you adhere to by choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to to have anatomy about this completely different way of re- looking at religion, right, where it's not necessarily a community or a group, it is cer- simply a set of rights that you use at a certain moment in your life because it is the mm-hmm. most appropriate and meaningful, kind of revealed to me how how blinkered we can be. <laughs> about our understanding of religion. Um, so I guess my, my, all of that is a long way of saying, um, I think we should pretty much take people as they want to be, right? We might say, just as our understanding of God is not perfect, our understanding of the whole project of religion is far from perfect and um, is affected by our cultural standing. And therefore, who are we to tell other people whether they constitute a religion or not or a people or whatever you know i also wonder if there's something just so human about the idea that we tend to think that the categories that we identify most strongly with exist in nature yeah or even Uh, universally within humanity or, or even universally within humanity right that religion and that you belong to a religion and that you can divide the world that way, or that you are a part of a race or an ethnicity or a, um, and one of the things I think to me, that's most meaningful about being a Jew is this sense that I am a part of an identity that existed long before the idea of a race or a religion or an ethnicity existed. Right. Those categories themselves, and we tend not to think of this, but those categories themselves are new categories that the world did not always think of humans as being divided into those things. And in fact, as your point with China, that you go basically anywhere else in the world and they have different categories that they divide the world into. Yeah, I mean, if you require a religion to have some kind of consistency of um, of thought or idea, I would say just reading the book of Exodus alone, we've already encountered maybe three different religions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, it, but they all belong to the people that is Judaism or the Jews. So maybe you do want to distinguish, right? You know, that's one of the things uh, you brought up early on that has really stuck with me, that when the uh, uh, when Moses comes down from Sinai and he encounters the people, right, this is Exodus 32, uh, having built the golden calf, that fundamentally we are seeing a people practicing a different religious tradition. It just sort of boggled my mind. I've never thought of it in that context before. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we have like the, the you know, Eloist. We have God referred to by different names. We have oh, yeah, sure. different aspects of God. You know, God when God is mercy, God when God is justice. Like all these are, are coming from different places and being woven together into this, you know, book that, that is formative of a people. Um, but you know, one could throw yourself 3000 years in the future. And if, you know, there are still Americans wandering the cosmos, um, and you ask us, you know, what are the different religious strains that went into us becoming Americans? There are going to be a lot of them. (laughs) So, yeah, 
Yeah. Anyway. All right. Long you know, I, I, think it, I think it does lead to a different reading of the books, though. Yeah. Because when I approach scripture, when I approach, for instance, the book of Exodus, I approach it as my people's story. Hmm. It, not necessarily it as a history of their story, but my people wrote this down as our understanding of our story. And I think that's different than how you might approach the text. Is that right? Yeah, I would, uh, you know, once we get into Acts, maybe I would see that more as, as my, but I wouldn't call it my people. I'd say it's my religion's understanding of their story. Um, but I, 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 you know, that that's the other thing about Christianity is because it is so conversion-based, uh, it inhabits it inhabits all these different peoples, all these different cultures, um, and uh, you know, I might call somebody you know living in the Andes whose Christianity still has some kind of whiff of like Aztec sacrifice of and blood ritual, you know, I, I might call them a co-religionist, but I don't think I would call them like part of my people. Hmm. Uh, but maybe that's just my own blinkered view. I don't know. I mean, if I think for myself who my people are, my people are Germans, right? <laughs> that's, they're my yeah. ancestors. They're not only my ancestors, they're, my mom was full German, right? So it's your ethnicity. Yeah. It's my ethnicity. Yeah. Yeah. And being a Jew is a little different from that in the sense that you can't convert to Germanism. That's right. Although um, I maybe part of the betrayal of the Holocaust is that there were plenty of Jews who thought they could. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. That, that was exactly the idea. And in fact, interestingly, the Jews living in Germany, the early reformers, uh, believed that they could give up all of the peoplehood parts of Judaism. Uh, and so you find really interesting, uh, today sort of tragically ironic descriptions where they're saying that they are Germans of the Hebrew faith. Right. Uh, and you know, the, the tragic irony is of course that Europe, Christian Europe didn't, didn't let this happen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost the opposite then of, of what people in America would say. Or, or is it? I wonder. Like, I, I'm, I'm thinking of some kind of secular Jewish friends of mine, uh, but they're not of the Hebrew faith. Maybe they would just say they were Jews. Like, <laughs> their yeah. ethnicity is is what has remained while their faith has fallen away. Well, you know, America is so focused on religion, right? It's built into our constitution uh, that, interestingly, American Jews often they feel that they're a part of a people, but don't have that language. So they'll say things like they are culturally Jewish. Yeah. Uh, and that's the language they use, but, but I'm not very religious because in the United States, we've sort of grown up believing that religious is the category. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, so, you know, I would say I'm culturally American, ethnically German, and religiously Christian. But at a certain point, as you multiply all these identifiers, it becomes more and more nonsensical, right? Yeah, it's a nice it's a nice reminder that all of these are made-up categories. They're all social exactly. constructs. Exactly. And, it, you know, it's a little like um, 
all these different terms for gender um, and sexuality that exist now where they can become so specific that after at, at a certain point you're kind of blinking and wondering what it means, right? Yeah. So uh, let's just let people be people. I don't know. Anyway, we've we've gone 25 minutes and we have not yet read a line of scripture. So let's push through this, baby. Yes, yes. Though I'm guessing no one listening is surprised. <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, there may just be no one listening. All yeah. right, so uh, why, why don't you take it away, Daniel? Uh, if, a, if a podcast is recorded in the woods and no one is there to hear it, is that sort of our, you know? Well, uh, it's really from our lips to God's ear at this point. Yes, God. Hashem is listening. There we go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, verse 1, chapter 35 book of Exodus. Moses then convoked, convoked. That's an interesting word. I have uh, assembled. Moses, assembled. That's much nicer. I'm not sure I've ever used the word convoked. Yeah. Uh, Moses then convoked the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. On six days, work may be done, but on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath day. Okay, let's stop there because there's uh, at least one midrash, which I I think is incredibly interesting. So this comes, uh, well, you don't actually say where it comes from on your sheet. You just say it's a midrash. But that um, verse 2, that Moses assembled the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, Sabbath of Sabbaths to God that this is a moment when the practice of assembling on a Shabbat is instituted. Yeah, this, and this continues to, in fact, we talked about it today, right? The the reading of the Torah each week and how we divide up the Parshans. Yeah, yeah. And what you told me before we began was kind of our first documentary evidence of this practice actually comes from the New Testament. Is that right? That yeah, right? yeah, right. When Jesus walks into the... Uh, 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 synagogue of the Pharisees and he reads the book of Isaiah. Is that what you said? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, but the earliest evidence we have for rabbinic Judaism, for the way that synagogues worked is Christian scriptures are the Christian scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty wild. So we know from the new Testament that by, uh, the first century, um, common era that Jews were assembling in this way. And now we have a justification from, from the Talmud for this practice. And that justification looks to this verse. Yes. Though actually probably not most Jews. We're probably only dealing with really a, a very with small fringy minority. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and probably that's, that's why Jesus is hanging out with them is, you know, these, these messianic movements like the Jesus movement are basically the fringes of society who are engaged in these things. Well, right. And Jesus himself, although Pharisees are put down in the New Testament with great frequency, Jesus himself is referred to as a rabbi. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, though it, it actually makes sense when you think about it. Why is it that Pharisees would be put down in the early Christian scriptures? Because uh, they're competing over the same hearts and minds. Right. Right. It's a, it's a limited number of people before the temple is destroyed, at least who are willing to 
even contemplate a religious practice outside of the mainstream temple service. And so you're already, you've got a small population. And so these groups, the Messianic groups, the uh, uh, Pharisees, the early rabbinic groups, uh, the Essenes, these sort of uh, um, ascetic groups, they're all competing for the same hearts and minds that are willing to go against the grain. I mean, most of your working class and middle class people, as much as it existed during this time, go along to get along because they're concerned about getting their market you know, their products to market and feeding their kids and so on and so forth. Right. They go to temple three times a year, like they're supposed to, um, they do all the kind of ritual stuff they're supposed to do They They just work their faith. Yeah. And you know, for, for most of the people, yeah. Okay. So the temple's not being run by the people it's supposed to. Yeah. The Romans have put stooges in as the high priest. What else is new? Everyone does that. Uh, you know, stop your complaining, go offer the sacrifice, get back to work. Yeah. Uh, it's only these fringy groups. Right. Right. Okay. Well, there we go. So let's push on. Um, unless do you want to look at the other midrash there too about the. Yeah. So one of the things I find really interesting here is for anyone who spent time with religious Jews, uh, Sabbath observance, Shabbat observance is amongst the most distinctive parts of Jewish practice. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that from Friday night as the sun goes down until Saturday night uh, with three stars, there are all sorts of restrictions on what you can and can't do. You know, within, within the Orthodox world, for instance, uh, you're not supposed to tear toilet paper. Right. Uh, if you've ever uh, been to certain areas of New York or Miami or Israel, uh, on the Sabbath, you'll discover that in buildings, there are Sabbath elevators, uh, that, that stop at every other floor on the way up and the other floors on the way down because you're not allowed to push the button. Hmm. Uh, all of these rules are derived from this section of the Torah, but none of it's here. Right. If you if you look at it, the only description that we get is you shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath day. Right. And, you know, I mean, clearly Moses knew what an elevator was. Yeah, he well, just thought that one phrase could kind of handle all of it. Come on. We don't think he really walked all the way up Sinai, do we? I mean, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was obviously like some kind of pulley system with a donkey. Um, I, I was thinking escalator, but you know, whatever. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Pushing on. Um, and Moses said to all the community of Israelites saying, this is the thing that the Lord has charged saying, take from what you have with you, a donation to the Lord whose heart urges him, let him bring it a donation to the Lord, gold and silver and bronze and indigo and purple and crimson linen and goat hair and reddened ram skins, and ochre-dyed skins, and acacia wood, and oil for the lamp, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the aromatic incense, and carnelian stones, and stones for setting in the ephod, and in the breastplate. And every wise-hearted man of money shall come and do all that the Lord has charged. So just a note, I, I have different things listed in my translation for almost all the descriptions ah. you gave. Uh, Interesting. And it's a nice reminder that a lot of these words only exist in these texts. Uh, 
So we don't really know what they mean. Right. 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 We don't know exactly what kind of stone they're talking about. We don't know exactly what kind of, you know, okay, yeah, maybe we can tell from context that this is an animal skin of some sort. But what sort of skin that is, you know, a lot of these are best guesses and traditions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is a good place to pause, too, and get into the mystical uh, as well, because don't we have here something from my from the... Oh, I'm going to mispronounce his name. The Lubavitcher Rebbe. <laughs> that was pretty good. Okay. Yeah, that was pretty good. Um, <laughs> that that yes. wants to take these different elements and read kind of mystical meaning into them. Okay, so let's get to the Midrash. Gold represents the purity and perfection of the Sadiq. The Silver righteous person. Yes. Uh, which Silver maybe repre- saint is not a terrible translation here. Okay, so the purity and perfection of the truly righteous, the saintly righteous. Yeah. Uh, silver silver represents the great yearning of the ball to Shuva, uh, the returning or penitent for closeness to God. So those are people who have kind of fallen away and are now trying to come back. So if I became like them, I would be considered a ball Shuva. Right. And it says uh, that this yearning is many more... T- many times more powerful than that of the Sadiq, which is interesting because that too, you know, as a Christian, I can't help reading that and hearing, you know, when Jesus heals sinners and is criticized for it or Mm. forgives sinners, you know, people are like, why are you doing that? And his answer is because they're the ones who are truly going to get it. Their yearning is, you know, many, many more times powerful than those of you righteous people. Yeah. Um, but the Midrash goes on uh, it, because it is a yearning from afar. So, And that copper is the lowliest of metals and represents the good deeds of the sinner. God's home is er, on earth is complete only when it includes all three. So that's what's kind of beautiful about it is it's saying all these things are needed. We're not only going to concern ourselves with the righteous or the saintly. We are going to... Um, uh, concern ourselves with those who are repenting to use Christian language, which I'm not sure is appropriate. And, and even more, we're going to concern ourselves with those people who are not repenting and yet still manage to do good deeds. Hmm. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like All that. Right. Um, what was the word you used? You said it was Christian. The uh, repentant. Re- yeah. You know, it's, that's the normal translation of this word tshuva. Uh, it's the theme of the High Holy Days. Is right. uh, We usually translate it as uh, repentant, but literally it means to return. And you get a sense of it here uh, from this teaching, that there is this notion that your soul calls you to return to something that you always could have been. Right. Right. I mean, I think in... in Christian theology, it's also, it's often thought of turning again or turning back as well. Mm. So many of those same meanings are probably there. Um, but, uh, you know, they're probably also freighted with all sorts of understandings of sin that might be very specific mm. to Christianity. But I don't think we have time to get entirely into that now. Um, so do you want to take the scripture from where I left off? I think I was at verse 10. 
Yes, and let all among you who are skilled come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its clasps and its planks, its bars, its posts and its sockets, the ark and its poles, the cover and the curtain for the screen, the table and its poles and all the utensils and the bread of display, the lampstand for the lighting, the menorah, uh, its furnishings and its lamps and the oil for lighting. Uh, by the way, we're told that this is a very special oil that has to be taken only from the olives that grow at the top of the tree. Hmm. Uh, the, is this the extra, the extra virgin? Olives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, uh, the uh, altar and the incense and its poles, the anointing oil and the aromatic incense, and the entrance screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. The Can altar- I interrupt with just a question? Yeah, please. Um, so I, I went to visit a friend who was having surgery this morning, and I anointed her with oil, as which is part of my priestly duty. Do, uh, do Jews currently use anointing oil at all? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Um, though, of course, the word for Messiah, Mashiach, uh, means anointed. It's the same word. Right, right. Okay, sorry to interrupt. just occurred to me. And let's see. Yeah. So we, we've actually got the same word here. So if you look in verse 15, uh, the second clause is Ve'et shemen ha-mishcha. And you can hear the relationship to that word. Shemen is oil and mishcha uh, for anointing is the same as Mashiach from which we get the word Messiah. Ah, uh, there and we of go. Course, the Greek translation of the same word is. Of what same word of Messiah? Yeah. Uh, Christ, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, which yeah. as I understand it, also means anoint or anointed. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, like you chrism. Know, I, I, that makes sense. Um, did I mention that I did not do very well in Greek <laughs> seminary? That, that the only way I could remember that the Greek word for wickedness is ponyru was to imagine an animal that was part pony and part kangaroo, <laughs> and therefore the wickedest creature on earth. Um <laughs> Wow. Wow. Yeah. I have a new image of wickedness. Like, you know, these images <laughs> in the book of Daniel or Revelations, they don't, they don't hold much on the pony kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, the pony roo. Um, okay, but this anointing oil then is only kept for anointing a king, I mean, or maybe a high priest as well. Yes. Uh, this wouldn't be oil that the normal people would get. No, no. Okay. Uh, uh, the altar of burnt offerings, its copper grating, its poles and all its furnishings, the laver and its stand. I, you know, just a note here that, you know, all this is repetition. We've encountered all of this before, but I'm really struck after our close reading of the book of Exodus, how I have an image of what these things are and where they go that I never had before. Yeah. I can picture them. Yeah, right. I, I get what they're talking about here. And this used to be definitely the section that I would read and be like, okay, let's see how fast we can read through this and sort of <laughs> not not take any of it in. Right. Which, to be fair, we are kind of doing now. But anyway, <laughs> come no, on. <laughs> you know, uh, the hangings of the enclosure, its posts and its sockets, in the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs for the tabernacle, the pegs for the enclosure, and their cords. This this is starting to sound like you know that first page in the IKEA manual where it lists all of the things that are right. inside the box. Um, right. Uh, the service vestments for officiating in the sanctuary, the sacral vestments of Aaron the priests, and the vestments of his sons for priestly service. Like there, I think of those garments, and all I can think about is how smelly they must be. Exactly. How like covered in oil and like bug attracting they are. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So the whole community of Israel left Moses's presence and everyone who excelled in ability and everyone whose spirit moved him came bringing to the Lord, his offering for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the sacral vestments. So this is voluntary here. That's what's interesting, right? This is not a communal tax like we've encountered before. Yeah, voluntary, but we do have to remember that uh, in very recent memory, right after the golden calf, so maybe a few days, uh, you know, before, uh, about a tenth of the camp was slaughtered for resisting this set of ideas. So, how voluntary is it? Really, it's a, volu- they were voluntold to bring these things. Yes. <laughs> exactly. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, to, but it is nice to think that some people are doing it purely out of an urging of the heart. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. And they brought brooches and earrings and rings and pendants, every ornament of gold, and every man who raised an elevation offered of gold to the Lord. Every man with whom was found indigo and purple and crimson and linen and goat hair and reddened ram skins and ochre dyed skins brought it. Whoever donated the donation of silver and bronze brought a donation of the Lord. And with whomever was found acacia wood for all the tasks of the work, they brought it. So I, every woman, I want to back you up for a second to yeah. 22. Will you read me the beginning of 22? Uh, and the men came besides the women, all whose heart urged them. Ah, okay. And so I must have missed that piece. But it's interesting here. We don't have a lot of references to women. Right. Uh, and here we get an explicit reference to this being a religious uh, ritual involving men and women. Yeah, I have a note from uh, Robert Alter that says, because of the gender-bound nature of impersonal constructions in Hebrew, all the preceding references to everyone were masculine. Now we are alerted to the fact that women played an important role in the outpouring of contributions for the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says it's another way of highlighting the comprehensiveness of the new impetus of generosity. So that that's kind of a negative look, way to look at it. Like they were being so generous that even the women were generous. Crazy, crazy times. Huh. Huh. But I, I, I don't know if we have to take Alter's reading of it here. Um, and at verse 26, we have the women again. And all the women whose hearts moved them with wisdom spun the gold tape. Hair. I think it's interesting that wisdom is a quality that leads to good goat hair spinning. Well, have you ever had goat hair clothing spun by people who were not wise? I think you'd understand. Well, you know, I am forming a band called Foolish Goat Hair. So, (laughs) 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 okay. And And the chieftains brought carnelian stones and stones for setting in the ephod and then the breastplate and the spice and the oil for the lamp and for the anointing oil, and for all the aromatic incense. Uh, the chieftains, does that mean the leaders of the of the tribes? Yep. yep. Okay. Uh, every man and woman whose heart urged them to bring for all the tasks that the Lord had charged to do by the hand of Moses, the Israelites brought a freewill gift to the Lord. Okay, well, that's all pretty good. And... In some ways, so what is the connection to earlier in the chapter? Earlier in the chapter, we get the details of the construction of the tabernacle and of the altar. And now we've got a collection for it. Yeah, that also earlier in the chapter, we get, you know, this is Shabbat uh, or not Shabbat, but this is the work you do before Shabbat. 
um, and then Shabbat is a rest from this work. Um, and one midrash we actually skipped comes from Rabbi Shnur Zalman of Liadi, uh, who I believe is what? What did you say he was grandfather, great grandfather of the? I, I think he is grandfather-in-law, maybe great-grandfather-in-law. Yep. Okay. And he says um, that the Mishkan not only defines the type of work forbidden on Shabbat, but also the type of the work the Jew is engaged in and, uh, in on the other six days of the week, the work of building a home for God out of the materials of physical life. Um, so that's kind of beautiful to think about uh, our work as building a home for God. And then on the seventh day, we go and just join God sitting in that home huh. for a bit. Huh. Ah, that's lovely. I like that quite a bit. I, I love that image. Yeah. So that's yeah. what these people are doing is they're, they're working away at building a home for God, just like we all can view our work as doing the same. Yeah. And right. It, it changes how you understand your purpose in life. I think when you think of it that way, that it's what we're supposed to spend the other six days doing, right? right. Whether we are priests or rabbis or carpenters or uh, accountants or whatever, are we building a holy world around us? Because that's what we're here to do. Yeah. And I like the fact it's building. So for for me, one of the great things about being married is that uh, from my in-laws, I learned something different than I kind of understood before, which is my, my in-laws are true materialists. Like if they're going to buy something, they spend a lot of time researching it and thinking about it and finding out about it. And um, they're not at all consumerist. Like they buy nothing lightly. That's a pretty powerful thing. And, you know, the more I've known them, the more I've thought about in my own life, the more I think it's it's kind of a spiritual discipline mm. to say, I'm not going to take any of this material world lightly. Uh, I'm going to treat it all with a great deal of seriousness. Um, and, and to me, the, this passage is somewhat saying the same thing. Like, don't take your material existence lightly. It is shot through with uh, the possibility of divine communion. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, you know, particularly yesterday was uh, the new holiday, Amazon Day, Prime baby, Day, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Which, as much as uh, Black Friday or Cyber Monday is, is a uh, holiday to the opposite to buying for it the sure sake is. of buying. Um, yep. Or I was just turned on to Wish dot com. Have you heard of Wish? No, it's Wish. Uh, yeah, now I'm giving an advertisement for your uh, uh, what your in laws would not like. Um, this podcast is brought to you by wish.com. Yes. Uh, wish.com sells products that are made primarily in China. Ah. Uh, and it is direct to consumer drop shipping from the Chinese factories. And so it, it's amazing. A lot of these products, I'll tell you the, the one I bought last night is a glowing red light that goes inside of your toilet bowl. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm very, my wife makes fun of me about this. I'm very weird about light at night. I'm very into this notion that uh, uh, light uh, stops your melatonin production and keeps you up. There's some good science behind this, but that's not true of red light. Red light does not stop your melatonin production. Uh, so I, in fact, I've gone through it times, uh, 
uh, and changed all the lights in our bedroom to red. And my, my wife doesn't like these things. Um, <laughs> it's like you're living in a bordello. Man. Yeah, it's, yeah. When, when the right group is over for a dinner party and she's had just a glass and a half of wine or so, all these stories come out. Yeah. Um, but you know, so I don't like the lights on at night and I go into the bathroom and if I got to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you can't see anything. So they make these toilet bowl lights. Uh, they're motion active. <laughs> uh, I can't believe I'm confessing this. This is like half therapy, half you know, podcasting. <laughs> uh, so you can buy one of these on Amazon for 15 bucks, 20 bucks, or whatever it is. You go on Wish, and if you don't mind that it's going to take you a month to get it from China, uh, it's free plus the cost of shipping, which is $2. Huh. And so there's all of this junk. It's the only word I can use, right? No one needs a, uh, a motion activated red toilet bowl light. <laughs> Not really. No. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, it is possible that that is one of what well, one of these, uh, these lost Hebrew words in this yes. chapter is referring to. Yes. The, the Messiah <laughs> shall be guided by the light of the toilet bowl. <laughs> right. Oh boy. Uh, okay. Well, let's finish this up before we're guilty of more things we need to atone for in the coming day. of Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and Moses said to the Israelites, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur from the tribe of Judah. Just to note, the name of the art academy in Israel today is named after him is Bezalel. Oh, right. Right. I think because we've heard of, of him before. So. Yeah. Yeah. He's the great artisan. Right. Um, and he's the son of her, and for some reason there's a little tradition here that her is the son of Miriam, right? Yeah, we don't get that anywhere here, but I love this idea, right, that these, these are the descendants right. of Miriam. So Bezalel is um, the great-nephew of Moses, if that, if that follows. So who's the um, son of Uri? Who is the son of Uri? Maybe the great-great-nephew of Moses? Well, I'm assuming Uri is Miriam's significant other. Son of Uri, son of Hur. No, Hur oh, is... Oh, you're right, right. I'm going in the backwards direction. Yeah. Okay. And Hur okay. is Miriam's son. Okay. Well, so depending on how old <laughs> Moses and Miriam are at this point, uh, Bezalel is like three. Yeah. But at any rate, we'll... we'll he's he's very precocious. <laughs> Apparently. Um, so the child Savan Bezalel, and God has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in every task, to devise plans, to work in gold and silver, and in bronze, and stone cutting for settings, and wood carving, to do every task of devising. And he has given in his heart to instruct he and Oholiab, son of Ahizamach, from the tribe of Dan. These are names that we really he should have kept. Aholiab. Yeah, you just don't encounter many of them. Like in my kids' preschool, I, I only think there's one or two Aholiabs. It's one really- or yeah, little little Ahohi. <laughs> I don't know what the dominion is. <laughs> um, uh, God has filled them with heart's wisdom to do every task of carver and designer and embroiderer and indigo and in purple and in crimson and in linen and a weaver, doers of every de- task and devisers of plans. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord has given wisdom and understanding to know how to do the task of the holy work should do all that the Lord has charged. Here ends the reading. Interesting. That is the first verse of chapter 36 for me. Oh, really? There we go. Huh. Oh, actually, uh, it is 
it is here too, but for some reason, altered puts it on the last one. I don't know why. It kind of makes sense. It fits more with the last one than the next chapter, I think. But yeah. Yeah. And okay. Anyway, nice reminder so we that these one over. chapters are not in the text themselves, these verses. Yes. Well, you know, guided by the light of the motion active, <laughs> activated <laughs> red toilet uh, beacon, we, we went past our allotted ending verse. So uh, this has been interesting. Um, if if the people are, are not a religion but a people, they certainly have a lot of religious trappings yeah. around them at this particular moment. Well, yeah, I mean, at least I understand it as Jews are a people whose religion is Judaism. Right, right. But you could be, uh, could you be somebody else whose religion was Judaism? Isn't that what a Christian is? <laughs> Touche, my friend. Uh, so I, you know, I mean that somewhat jokingly, but I actually mean that honestly. I mean, it, at some level, that's my understanding of what Christianity is, is it's a universalification of Judaism. It, it's a taking of the Jewish notions and moving it beyond the trappings of a people. Yeah. I, you know, I'm willing to go with that to a certain degree, except I think in Jesus's time, of course, there were a whole bunch of different Jewish notions as we were just talking about, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe it would be more appropriate to say a very specific set of yeah. Jewish yeah. notions. And, you know, I mean, tenets that are important to Christianity, like, resurrection uh were jet were not jewish notions of moses's time no uh, but I, i'll tell you this is, this is one of the interesting things to me so you find jewish notions of the resurrection of the dead in, in very christian sense of it uh during the time of the second temple and the destruction of the second temple around around jesus's time and it's right. only once christianity rises as a non-jewish movement that these ideas become uh, traif, become non-kosher within the Jewish realm. Right. That yeah, my understanding is is the idea of resurrection really came out of the, the Maccabean revolt, you know, that you had all these uh, seemingly righteous and great people being killed off, um, and it just seemed completely unjust. And how do you square that with the justice of God? Well, one way is you say they're not really dead. They're all coming back. They're all coming back. Yeah. So uh, anyway, all that is fodder for future conversations, I'm sure. It's amazing how similar some of these religious stories are to notions of a zombie apocalypse when you really think about it. Or, I mean, frankly, I think the zombie apocalypse is just borrowing from us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. All right, dear listeners. Uh, thank you for listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. Uh, it was made possible and continues to be made possible by the very kind help of the Diocese of Southern Ohio and Christ Church Cathedral. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Daniel, do you have anything you want to plug? I I have no plug. I, I do have one observation, though, um, that it happened to me this week. It was really interesting. You know, I spent the last six months or so being sort of the, the, the Jew to the Episcopalians. Yeah. And in the last week, three or four times, I have been the Episcopalian to the Jews. 
Interesting. In what way? You know, I'm part of a rabbinic forum uh, online where rabbis discuss all sorts of issues. And there was a whole thing that came up about Anglicans and Episcopalians. Uh, And I was like, these are my people. I can help. (laughs) Um, It was probably because we just had our our general convention, uh, uh, which happens every three years. So we've been in the news. Uh, but it's been sort of neat. I, I feel like this is, a, a to borrow some of our phrasing here, another tribe that I'm carrying with me now. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, well, I the only thing I really want to plug is the poetry of Denise Levertov, speaking of how Jews and Christians come together. So she's she's my favorite poet. I've been reading a lot of her lately. 20th century poet. And she is actually the daughter of a Russian Jew who became a Christian convert and an Anglican priest. There you go. There we go. A combination of all those things. And for most of her life, she was an agnostic of non-atheist and kind of in late life, uh, she began to be much more interested in faith and wrote beautiful religious poetry. But great. So there we are. All right, brother. I will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week.